Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe today is the first day of September. Now, I don't know where all the time has gone, but I do know that the older we get in life, time does move by a lot faster than we would like for it to. So, I'm glad to be on the air with you guys, as always, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you all another segment to the podcast series that we are um, discussing, being Utah Springs, the Final Battle of the American Revolution, Southern Campaign, by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. From what I've uh, gathered so far, uh, there are a lot of you who are very, very fascinated in this uh, podcast topic, given that most of you, if not all of you who have been listening, probably did not know a thing about this battle, meaning that you all had probably never been taught the fact that there had been another battle in the Southern campaign that had uh, taken place uh, prior to Yorktown. I think it's fair to say that all of us can agree that, you know, for the longest time we were always told that it was Yorktown, that, w- that it was the final battle. In actuality, it wasn't. But that's the irony to history is that we're learning something new all the time. And just when we think we've put together all the pieces to the puzzle, there are more pieces to the puzzle that have to be um, explored before they can be uh, fit into their uh, proper places. So I'm sure many of you are probably wondering now in this particular uh, segment, where are we exactly going? I mean, we've learned everything there is to know about the um, American leadership. We've now learned everything there is to know about the British leadership. But in this uh, segment, we're going to learn... For example, we're going to learn why General Nathaniel Green thought it was necessary to come back to South Carolina. Remember, from late 1780 into most of 1781, Green's time has been spent uh, fighting the British with uh, partisan guerrilla warfare tactics throughout the Carolinas, north and south. But we will learn in this uh, segment whether or not... Not so much whether or not Green comes back to South Carolina, but why he did come back to South Carolina after spending an extensive period of time uh, to the north in uh, North Carolina. We will also learn in this segment uh, some necessary, uh, or I should say vital information about uh, geology and uh, geography. After all, it's one thing to learn where an army uh, goes about establishing an, an encampment, But we should keep in mind that how and where an army establishes an encampment is essential so that the enemy just doesn't catch them by surprise out of nowhere. And we should also keep in mind, too, when it comes to geography especially, no matter where we live and what surrounds us in terms of forests, uh, what do you call it, landscape scenery, we should keep in mind that whatever we are surrounded by is not the same landscape that may have existed 200 years before. So, you know, we might be walking along, you know, flat terrain, but just because we're, we're walking on flat terrain, it doesn't mean that that same flat terrain was in its, in its um, size or shape or layout compared to what may have been in that same vicinity or um, area 200 years before. So in other words, um, land itself evolves 
Of course, you know, if you're a geologist, you know that land has changed over millions of years. But from a historian's point of view, that the uh, landscape that we are um, surrounded by is not the same landscape that our forefathers would have lived under, say, 250 years ago. So that's, on one hand, that's the uh, that's one of the uh, many ironies to history, is that um, is that land changes over time. Sometimes it changes for the better, and other times it does not change for the better. But one thing is certain is that um, is that no two uh, landscapes are probably alike, and that just because we we are surrounded by land now, it doesn't mean that it was the same uh, landscape as it had been um, two or three centuries uh, prior to. So our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment to uh, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign, is the following. Why did American General Nathaniel Green believe it was necessary in returning to South Carolina just months after fighting Cornwallis's troops at Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina? Remember, Green fought. Green and his forces fought uh, Lord Charles. Fought uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis's forces at Guilford Courthouse around mid March of 1781. Now, Green's army did not win that bat. They didn't win that specific specific battle. The most important thing, though, is that Nathaniel Green's army still was preserved. In other words, yes, Green's army did take on some casualties and had troops that were wounded, but in the end, their army was in better shape than that of Cornwallis's. Cornwallis's, the British uh, army under General Cornwallis at uh, Guilford Courthouse probably uh, lost either 400 men or just shy of 400 that were either killed or wounded. But as one member of Parliament said, another Pyrrhic victory, like this one, will result in will result in uh, an eventual defeat. In other words, yes, we may have claimed victory, but we claimed victory at a terrible cost. In other words, if we were already being somewhat routed as it was, or routed rather, maybe it's time to just fall back and save what we have left of our forces, so that so that we still have a um, cohesive army, one that is still well-functioning, that can uh, live on to fight for another day. Of course, in the end, Cornwallis's forces retreated to uh, the coast of North Carolina after uh, Guilford Courthouse into uh, Wilmington, where they um, had to pretty much establish a new base for uh, military supplies, because after all, the British base for this southern campaign in terms of its... Uh, outmost uh, strategical post has been in Charleston, South Carolina. So what has Nathaniel Green ultimately done? Well, for starters, he and his um, ragtag continental forces have um, have kept the British Army on a constant um, chase. He has kept them on such a constant chase to where to where the British are now being worn out. They don't know where the end is going to be. They have been forced to uh, they've been forced to abandon the confines of Charleston to where the further north they go, perhaps the further west they go of Charleston, no matter what the outcome will be, 
the British army is going to wear down over time. It may not take one or two battles to wipe them out or to really just decimate their forces, but the more skirmishes that take place, the greater the likelihood that over time the British will be worn out to where by the time their forces do make it into Virginia, it may not be the same fighting force that had such success at the Siege of Charleston, Waxhaws, Camden. So the goal is to basically not just annihilate the British, but to wear them down to when the time comes for them to fight elsewhere. They may eventually um, not just be annihilated, but they will eventually be so worn down to where they may not be able to, uh, what do you call it? They may not be able to uh, flee and um, get uh, safe access across the Chesapeake Bay. Because remember, that's what Cornwallis sought to do um, with Yorktown, but he was cut off by uh, the French who, uh, grad who made their way south from New York and Rhode Island into um, the heart of the Chesapeake Bay where they were able to um, cut off Cornwallis's um, gateway exit, uh, meaning that he could either go up north or go back to England. So, so for uh, Nathaniel Green, another big issue is that, um, for, in a sense, is that for starters, Nathaniel Green had learned from um, the Continental C Congress that British leaders were in the beginning stages of making peace proposals. Okay, so this is one fundamental reason why Nathaniel Green has um, decided to come back to South Carolina, because he's learned that um, from the Continental Congress that British leaders were in the beginning stages of making peace proposals that called for granting independence to 11 of the 13 colonies. Why not all of them? Is there something that the British want so desperate that those uh, people living in these two colonies are willing to resubmit their allegiances to the crown? Would it be colonies to the north, the middle, or the south? What two colonies do you think? They're in the south. Are they in the upper south or the lower south? Remember the upper south is Virginia, North Carolina. The lower south is South Carolina and Georgia. The answer is choice B, uh, the lower south of the uh, lower southern colonies of South Carolina and Georgia. That's whom British leaders are wanting to um, control. They want those two colonies to resubmit their uh, allegiance to the crown. And not just those two colonies to submit their allegiance to the crown, but, but for Nathaniel Green... This is all the more of a bigger concern because Nathaniel Green wants to be able to um, reverse action by controlling as much territory in South Carolina possible, as much as pos possible to prevent British leaders from having their way. Green himself knew ahead of time that British reinforcements were coming southward. You know, Nathaniel Green doesn't miss out on a whole lot. But he knows that the British are itching for a fight. They're not going to uh, go away easily. Yes, Cornwallis has not been able to achieve the slam dunk that he thought he could get in the South, most notably after October of 1780 when uh, the British were defeated at Kings Mountain, which prevented Cornwallis and his men from going north into North Carolina, 
Of course, Kings Mountain is right on the North and South Carolina, North South Carolina line, closer to Charlotte. But that victory by the Americans was much needed to where Cornwallis and his men were forced to retreat back south into the heart of South Carolina. So it is important to, re to realize that after uh, Guilford Courthouse, that Nathaniel Green, um, yes, he did achieve um, his mission in preserving his army, but rather than pursue Cornwallis north into Virginia, he felt it was necessary to go back south, given, given that uh, he had learned from the Continental Congress that the British, that British leaders were in the initial stages of making peace propo proposals that called for granting, granting independence to only 11 of the 13 colonies. So if Green's not in South Carolina, it is fair to say that British officials have all the more leverage in trying to persuade those living in South Carolina and Georgia to go along with this uh, peace proposal where those two colonies are going to resubmit their allegiance to the crown. Very fragile times, to say the least. It doesn't take much to persuade people to choose a side, but depending on the circumstances at stake, the side that they choose may, may not always result in being for the better. Now, although Green's troops had done an effective job from late 1780 and throughout most of 1781 by keeping British forces concentrated in the Carolinas, Green's army had endured setbacks. Of course, one of them was at Guilford Courthouse. The other two were at uh, Hobkirk's Hill in uh, the Siege of 96. Is it fair to say that time truly, that time itself was truly on Nathaniel Green's side? No, time was not on Green's side. Meaning, uh, for example, that enlistments for a handful of his troops serving under him were about to near their expiration. So remember, folks, in even at the onset of the Revolutionary War, you had soldiers that came and went. Then, when you got to that crisis time after in the aftermath of the debacle at New York in 1776 leading into Trenton and Princeton uh, the Continental Army was on the brink of collapse soldiers were deserting soldiers were going back home to their families morale had reached an all-time low now morale had not reached an all-time low despite the midst of these uh, setbacks at Guilford Courthouse Hobkirk's Hill in 96 but Nathaniel Green knows that the, the enlistments aren't going to be there forever, given that he knows that as of right now, there's still no end in sight. But he's got to be able to find a way to keep the army intact, the Southern Continental Army. And by doing so would be to um, lead them into another series of um, not just skirmishes, but skirmishes that lead to the eventual um, big, big engagement, meaning the battle. Green has been all about, you know, engaging in skirmishes that lead to the big battle because uh, right around the time he arrived in December of 1780 into uh, North Carolina, Green himself had said, look, all it's going to take is one major battle that we go up against with the British and given the circumstances we're in, we're not ready to take them on in a big battle. If we do take them on in a big battle, 
we're going to get decimated. In other words, we can't go into open uh, linear warfare combat with these guys and expect to come away victorious. After all, it is fair to say after what had happened in August of 1780 at Camden, that debacle, the Continental Army was in desperate need of uh, reinvention, and that's why uh, Washington was finally able to be given the oppor opportunity through the discretion of the Continental Congress to choose his own commander for the Southern Continental Army, and Washington, of course, made the wisest of decisions by selecting none other than uh, Nathaniel Green. So, yes, time is of uh, all the utmost essential importance here. So, you know, if Green does not engage the British in a battle anytime soon, then why should his soldiers below him choose to stick around? You know, people can come and go if they want, but if people come and go as they wish without any structure, then how can an army itself um, be a functioning unit? How can the army itself be cohesive? After all, it was George Washington who didn't have a whole lot of regards for the militia because they came and went as they pleased, but Washington's come to realize now that as the war has progressed into its sixth year, that the militia have finally been able to prove themselves. They've actually been able to show that they can prove not only to themselves, but to those above them, that they are worthy fighters. So yes, Nathaniel Green is very anxious to redeem these past setbacks at Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk's Hill in 96, Siege of 96, with a surprise victory. Now, what move did Green, or rather, rather I should say, what move did General Green make on July 16th of 1781? I don't know if I would say this is one that constitutes breaking news, but it was a very important move nonetheless. Green moved his forces to a campsite along the high hills of Santee, where they remained in place while awaiting reinforcements to arrive. Interesting, the high hills of Santee. We're going to learn some very, very uh, important uh, stuff about the high hills uh, here momentarily. While Green's men stayed put along the high hills of Santee, you had militia and partisan fighting groups led by leaders Thomas Sumter and Francis Marion, whom partook in guerrilla-style fighting that delayed British regiments, or I should say uh, British regiments and troop units, in getting to their intended target of destination. The longer you can... Um, the longer you can uh, delay the enemy in getting to their intended, to their intended target of destination, uh, that's all to your advantage. But by the time they do get to their um, intended target of destination, they may not be as well functioning of a unit as they had been prior to um, the arrival into their new um, post. So remember that uh, guerrilla-style fighting is essential and that it throws the enemy, such as the British, off guard to where they, they uh, get fired upon out of nowhere. They start seeing men falling down, and if they end up losing five, seven men, then that just means the British are going to be um, without a handful of their men. That means they'll have to go miles away, perhaps to find... Um, loyalists who are uh, regular loyal, loyalist civilians whom are willing to take up the cause against the uh, patriots. So this is another example of wearing down the enemy to where, you know, you're not about, you're not all about killing 
a hundred men, but it, but you're willing to create enough shock and awe to where if you knock down five to ten men, it just means that um, that uh, that your numbers are not going to be able to be replenished instantly. Are there many unique things about high hills of Santee? Absolutely. For starters, the high hills provided a central location lookout point and allowing American um, commanders better access behind monitoring British troop movement within South Carolina's central region. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that the high hills of Santee are in uh, the Palmetto State's uh, central region. Secondly, the high hills provided various weather-related advantages. Okay, what kind of weather-related advantages are we talking about here? How about cooler temperatures, lower humidity levels, to providing relief from mosquito-infested swamps, given that heat, humidity, sickness, bad health, all played out during the Revolutionary War Southern Theater. You know, in the summertime, especially down in the Deep South, and it's this way today, but even during the time of the American Revolutionary War, in the summers, in the southern colonies, it could get quite downright hot. And it's one thing to endure the oppressive heat, but we have to wonder, are there ways for some people, those whom, say, are a little bit more fluent than others, to have access to um, seek higher ground, to avoid... Um, being stuck in the center of such oppressive conditions, or rather I should say oppressive weather conditions. Well, Santee originates from the French word for health. In the summertime, there people of well-to-do status from the low country, from South Carolina's low country region, ventured to the high hills as a means of escaping intense heat and uh, the mosquitoes to avoiding swamps and marshes from middle and lower coastal plains where malaria and yellow fever lied rampant. So for those uh, people who are of well-to-do status, they can escape their homes from the low country and go uh, to higher ground along the high hills of Santee, where there's lower humidity, less contact with um, insects like mosquitoes, which are known for, um, for producing, um, well, mosquitoes, as we know, uh, are, can be contributors to uh, malaria. But mosquitoes are very, very uh, frequent visitors of swamps. Swamps are uh, probably not the, the best place uh, to surround yourself in, and marshes as well, given that they are um, not only just insect, um, insect havens, but are also places where diseases are um, not only originate, but can spread uh, very quickly if gone unnoticed. So whenever you think of the word Santee being the Santee River, uh, think of a French word for health. There's a place not too far from where I live. It's a place called Bonaire. 
bon or bon is referred to in French as good air. Back in the late 19th century, uh, people uh, working in downtown Richmond and people who came as uh, far um, south of Richmond uh, in what was then Southside, or what is rather Southside, Virginia, they would take the train and come into uh, this place called Bon Air, where they would uh, escape the, um, the uncleanly air that they were exposed to from um, industrial work. So Bon Air to them was seen as a place where they could um, get respite from the dirty uh, side of things to uh, the more uh, cleanliness of of uh, all things around them. So whenever you think of Bon Air, you think of uh, the phrase good air. The high hills of the Santee region, for those of you who are wondering exactly where are the high hills of the Santee located, it's a region that's uh, north of the Santee River and east of the Wateree River. Now, the Wateree River is a tributary. And whenever we think of tributaries, we think of streams or rivers that flow into a large stream or river. So, the Wateree River is a tributary of the Santee River, and it's located not far from uh, Columbia and uh, Sumter. Uh, basically, um, the Santee, uh, the high hills of Santee is, are located in present-day Sumter County. Sumter County, folks, is named in honor of Revolutionary War officer Thomas Sumter. And there is a fort in South Carolina called Fort Sumter where the first shots of that infamous American Civil War got fired in 1861. Thomas Sumter got the famous uh, nickname known he was referred to as the Carolina Gamecock. You know, the University of South Carolina's mascot is a Gamecock. They are referred to as the Fighting Gamecocks. Why was some Thomas Sumter referred to as the Fighting Gamecock? Simply because of his fierce fighting tactics. And he didn't get the nickname from within his, um, from within his um, inner officer circle. A gentleman on the British side, I don't know if I would call him a gentleman, but rather a high-ranking officer on the British side named Colonel Banastray Tarleton, a.k.a. Bloody Ban, gave Thomas Sumter not just the nickname of the Carolina Gamecock, but he described Thomas Sumter as the equivalent to a Gamecock, a fierce fighter who had fierce styles of fighting, but had fierce fighting in him to where his fighting was the equivalent of irregular uh, style. It was non-traditional. So Colonel Banastray Tarleton gave him that name of the fighting Gamecock in the aftermath of the British defeat at Blackstock's uh, farm in uh, November of 1780. Matter of fact, that was the first battle that Colonel Banastray Tarleton had been defeated in in the uh, South Carolina campaign. Now we're going to move on to uh, the British here, because we got to figure out where are they going in terms of encampment. We, I mean, we already know that the um, Americans have established encampment along the high hills of Santee. So did Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, the British commander, make his army's encampment move to higher ground around mid-August 1781? Now the answer is yes. 
Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's army went from Orangeburg, which is southeast of Columbia, to Thompson's Plantation on the south side of the Congaree River. It was at Thompson's Plantation that Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's army forces established camp along top of a hill that stood 160 feet above the Congaree River's floodplain. Do any of you all know what a floodplain is? It's an area of low-lying ground that's next to a river. So, at Thompson's Plantation, where uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's Army's forces established camp, they were... Um, the uh, floodplain, rather, I should say, was near McCord's Ferry, where the Watery and the Congaree Rivers met and still meet to this day to form the Santee River. The location onto itself provided Lieutenant Colonel Stewart with the necessary means of monitoring Green's forces, whom were stationed northeast along the rivers in the high hills of Santee. So we have to keep in mind that just because there's one encampment, it doesn't mean that, you know, the other army is just going to walk by and say, oh, there's the enemy, let's go surprise them. I mean, that's th this isn't hide-and-go-seek, folks, um, if, in case you all are, I'm sure many of you all know that, but we should just keep in mind that this is not a game of hide-and-go-seek, obviously. Um, it is fair to say that uh, both sides are in areas where they have, um, where the forests have provided them with some very good protection, but they also have the means of, each side has the means of being able to um, monitor the other's uh, movements. Now, given General Green's forces were stationed along the high hills of Santee, waterways, rather I should say routes and swamps, of the watery Congaree and Santee rivers separated the Americans and Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's British forces by roughly how many miles? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, 10 to 20. The answer is 15. So I just found this found this very interesting that the, the waterways, these routes and swamps of the three rivers I just mentioned a moment ago, they all separated the Americans and the British forces by roughly 15 miles. 12 of those 15 miles comprised of swamp water. In other words, 75%. So, to think about all that swamp water. It's not the most pleasant of water. But you're going to have to find ways to get around the swamp water because there's no, um, because you're not immune from it. And is it fair to say that there are only a limited number of ferries available in coordinating river crossings at this time? Yes. There are the Camden and Simmons ferries along the watery. You have... Three ferries along the Congaree being Friday's Howells, actually rather Friday's, Howells, and McCord's. And then you have two ferries along the Santee, Manigault's and Nelson's. So think about it, three rivers, seven ferries total. You know, seven may not be the biggest number, but it's probably, rather I should say it's better than not having any ferries, but we also have to keep in mind that... Um, that ferry crossing is also impacted by the weather. So most of the land that bordered these rivers was often wide, flat, and comprised of low-lying swamp 
infested terrain. And when heavy rains occurred, these, the heavy rains themselves made the swamps impassable. We're not just talking days, folks, but for many weeks until the floodwaters themselves receded. Isn't it fair to say that when we get heavy rains today, or rather in today's time, you know, sometimes cities can receive 12 to 15 inches of rain out of nowhere, and the uh, floodwaters just don't recede overnight. Sometimes it could take a whole week before those waters recede, depending on just how bad the circumstances are. So, you know, if you get a bad rainstorm in, along these rivers, being that of the uh, Watery, Congaree, and Santee, it could definitely take uh, weeks before the, those floodwaters can be receded to where it's safe for a ferry crossing. So we should definitely keep in mind that transportation is not something to uh, be taking for granted. Not just so much in today's time, but when we think about transportation in the 18th century, even in times of uh, warfare, transportation was not always accessible. And a lot of that had to do with weather. Given General Green's army uh, left its encampment along the high hills around August the 23rd of 1781, how did Green himself choose to move his army? And this is important, folks. You know, you know, we have there are so many factors that have to be taken into consideration as to how you want to move your army, because the last thing you don't want to have happen is to be caught off guard by the enemy to where if your army is caught, then basically if your army is caught, then there's really no mission. In other words, who's going to back you up? And if you don't have any backup from somewhere else, then the whole mission itself is done. Well, first off, Nathaniel Green chose to have the army march along a route that would take longer. Given the hurdles lying ahead involving the means of getting around swamps to crossing rivers. Okay, so a longer route is going to be one that um, hopefully will deceive the enemy. Because, yes, there can always be that one common route to go, but if you take that common route, who knows what you could encounter upon. I mean, you could say that anywhere, but sometimes the most familiar of routes may not always be your best options. So the longer the route in this situation meant a less likelihood of soldiers getting trapped to where they could not pull themselves out of sticky waters, being the swamps, and facing certain risks like drowning should the river water levels be high following a rainstorm. So isn't it fair to say that um, that it's one, you know, how are we going to um, get around, um, how are we going to go about taking a route that's not going to, um, that's not going to involve having to, um, Trudge through the um, swamps as well as um, navigating through um, through a river, you know. Because think about this: if the uh, if the if the rainstorms that have come through have flooded the river so much, so then river crossing, even with the horse alone, is no guarantee. You know, the horse itself could drown. The uh, the the person riding the horse could fall off and and lose his life as well. 
so for Nathaniel Green, he made it a priority when he arrived um, into the Carolinas at, towards late 1780 to get to know that not just the, the land itself, but these rivers. In other words, how do these rivers serve us? How do we know um, to work around the rivers when, when nature sets in? In other words, heavy rains. So Nathaniel Green had people below him whom were trained as surveyors to go about um, doing their homework or investigation with these uh, rivers as to how they could serve to their advantage. August uh, the 10th of 1781, I, I found this even more interesting, two weeks earlier, a hurricane came through resulting in heavy flooded rivers and swamps. By around August 23rd, 1781, General Green ordered his men to march north towards Camden, where they would cross the Watery River and then move southwest and cross the Congaree River at Howell's Ferry. So think about this, folks. Two weeks before, a hurricane came through. And is it fair to say that maybe two weeks after, the water levels have receded to where it's safe for Green to um, be able to make a crossing along a body of water? Yes. Now, in Camden, of course, whenever I think of Camden, I think of that uh, debacle from August of 1780, where the British, under General Lord Charles Cornwallis, had routed, at the time, Southern Continental Army uh, Commander Horatio Gates and his forces. They simply routed Gates's men because they found a weak spot in the um, militia line where Gates thought it was okay to line the militia up against some of the best um, against some of the best British fighting units that Cornwallis had. Gates's militia were lined to the left, Cornwallis's best units to the right. Cornwallis's men saw an opening, a huge opening gape in the militia lines to where they where Cornwallis instructed a bayonet charge take place. Once that charge took place, they they broke the militia lines, the militia ran for their lives, and the onslaught was on. So yes, whenever I think of Camden, that's what I nine times out of ten think of. Camden was located in what's called a in the fall zone. This pertains to uh, being placed uh, further downstream by the furthest downstream place that was surrounded by bedrock shoals. Of course, when I think of the shoals, I think of um, rocks that are not uh, visible, um, rather uh, objects below um, a river um, or um, a lake, even an ocean that are not visible that can um, do uh, damage, for example, to a boat. But of course, when I think of shoals, I tend to think of shoals um, along Great Lakes waters that have been known to... Um, to uh, do extensive damage to the bottoms of the uh, care of the uh, Lakers, the the big ships, or the uh, straight deck uh, freighter uh, vessels, to where once the um, vessels below touch, um, once their bottom uh, components, the holes touch the um, shoals, and the shoals um, we call it create um, gashes in the ships. Those ships. Um, flatten out, bottom out to where uh, cargo gets destroyed and perhaps if the damage is so bad that the ship is no longer salvageable. So shoals um, 
you know, shoals are uh, interesting. Uh, uh, they are objects with interesting minds of their own. But nonetheless, um, the fall zone, given that it's uh, being placed by the furthest downstream place surrounded by bedrock shoals and the river channels being wide straits or waterways between two land, land masses lying close to one another, Nathaniel Green um, decided to take a roundabout route. Of course, when I think of roundabout, I think of uh, the cars along a roadway intersection. Green takes the roundabout route where the watery and congaree rivers would be easier to navigate once entering into Camden and Howells Ferry. And Green also determined that the roads were well-drained, and the roundabout route also enabled Green's forces to attack to uh, go about attacking their enemy from Thompson's plantation from the west. So Green has uh, thoroughly done his homework. I mean, he didn't do a test um, run with all this, but just based upon the findings that those below him uh, provided who had um, done uh, surveying, uh, like most notably uh, Thaddeus Kajusko, for whom Kajusko, Mississippi is named after. He was one of uh, the surveyors. But that kind of work right there is sufficient and essential because if you don't do this kind of work ahead of time, then how are you going to be able to get the army going in the most um, in the safest of routes where uh, loss of life could be uh, minimal? Did civilians join by marching alongside Green's army? Yes, uh, civilians con comprised of wives and children to soldiers whom were currently in service. You had medical personnel as civilians. You had refugees whom had nowhere else to go. The majority of these civilians were, yes, women and children, and even women without children, whom performed tasks like serving as nurses, to performing daily tasks like doing laundry, some women were widows. So, to sum it all up, just because you have a Continental Army, that does not mean that it's confined to soldiers. Isn't it fair to say that, um, that the Continental Army is comprised of more than just soldiers? Absolutely. I mean, there does need to be medical personnel. I mean, there is no patient first. Uh, there's, no, there's not a patient first facility nearby a battlefield. So medical personnel need to be on hand to treat those whom are wounded and those whom simply need care. August 27th, 1781, uh, British forces moved back to uh, the confines of Utah Springs with the concerns of being lured into a trap elsewhere. Utah Springs is um, closer to Charleston and its proximity to Charleston gave Lieutenant Colonel Stewart the hope of uh, receiving extra supplies and reinforcements. Now, many of you are probably wondering uh, just what truly was Utah Springs. It's a unique name. I, I think it's a unique name. Of course, when I think of places that have... Uh, that are um, that's a, like a city or a town that's uh, two words. I often think of Saratoga Springs in New York State, uh, just about 50 miles north of Albany. So what exactly was Utah Springs? 
Well, for starters, Utah Springs was a natural cave and spring system. Does anybody know what a spring system is or what a spring itself is? Of course, and we're not talking about the season here. A spring or springs marked a place where water, moving underground, finds an opening onto land surface and emerges, or rather I should say, visibly emerges. So water is moving underground, but then finds a way to, um, it finds an opening onto a land surface. So in other words, it's a hidden, um, it's a hidden geological um, formation or a hidden geological um, wonder, to say the least. Utah Springs was uh, located near the main road towards uh, Charleston that flowed into Utah Creek. Utah Creek was a tributary of the Santee River. Utah Springs had uh, two springs. One of its springs, per observations that had been made well after the Revolutionary War, one observer saw uh, one of the springs or uh, determined that one of the springs appeared to be at the bottom of a hill. It was about 20 or 30 feet in height. Water rose to the surface and shined in large quantities. And for those of you who are curious to know what Utah means, it's Cherokee. It's a Cherokee word for pine trees. Remember, folks, the Cherokee Indian nation um, occupied a swath of territory that went as far southwest into uh, present-day southwest Virginia, far remote western North Carolina, northwest South Carolina, and even um, parts of Georgia. That's how big the Cherokee Nation Empire uh, was. So Utah is Cherokee for pine tree. And around the time of the Utah Springs battle, there stood a brick house, a two-story home that was located within the road to uh, Charleston. British forces camped in the yard around the house. In between the home and springs was a fortified garden. So let's just keep in mind, folks, that yes, we have... Um, some springs around us, but that's not to say that other um, features are right nearby, being that of a um, of a two-story home. What side had more troops going into Utah Springs battle? The Americans. For the Americans, or the Patriots, General Greene had 1,056 Continentals, but he assigned 200 of those Continental troops to guard the Army's belongings. Green also had 1,020 militia and state troops, bringing his total to 2,076. That's pretty impressive. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart only had 1,200 men fit for duty due to illness issues. Each Army had its share of veteran troops including large numbers of deserters and one-time prisoners whom would be fighting against former comrades. It is fair to say that this uh, conflict in the South, it's not so much about patriots and British soldiers. It's also about those men who have been forced into fighting for one side, given that they had previously fought 
on the other side, all as a means of trying to recoup lost numbers, especially for the British, because they are desperate for um, men to come fight on their side. I've mentioned the word cohesion some early on, but I'm going to mention it again. Was cohesion an important element behind the overall performance of how well 18th century, of how well an 18th century army functioned? Yes, cohesion in general directly pertains to the action or fact of forming a united whole, or rather I should say a united front. Going into Utah Springs, American forces had the distinction of holding a minimal edge given the majority of Continental regulars had fought together for many years, including militiamen whom saw extensive fighting combat throughout the Carolinas campaign. So yes, many of these men whom have um, been fighting along the American side, many of them have been fighting since, say, 1775-1776. They are really no strangers to war. They've seen the lows and they've seen the highs, but they have uh, fought together for many years. And we have now seen the militiamen undergo an extensive um, reinvention overhaul to where they are no longer afraid to fight. They have been able to prove that they have what it takes to to go head-to-head uh, -head with uh, some of the best Brit British regulars. Extensive combat fighting over the years, over years' time, had provided American troops the motivation required behind keeping British confined to a certain area or region longer than the enemy had planned on staying, being that of the Carolinas. British regulars going into Utah Springs were not as experienced, given they did not arrive in South Carolina until spring 1781. Many British regulars had little battlefield combat experience and simply were not fit for the climate that, um, that they had uh, now become exposed to. Given how hot summers could be in general throughout the southern colonies, you know, I think weather itself is something that we forget takes time for uh, people to adjust to. If you live in a northern colony and you ventured all, the, let's say you lived in Massachusetts and came south to uh, South Carolina, that's a cultural shock in terms of the weather. Now, that's not to say in 1781 that South Carolina would probably have had its uh, share of snow, especially in places where we probably would not have expected it to snow in South Carolina. But back in, in 1781, it might be fair to say that um, Camden, South Carolina would have gotten snow. But we have to remember the climate and the state of Earth was much different compared to what it is today. But for someone to come north into a southerly, for someone coming from a northern colony into a southern colony, the weather is, they're going to get a um, culture shock because they're not used to humid weather up in the New England region. You know, 75, 80 degrees in 1781 probably might have been considered a heat wave for um, northern colonies, but to get, um, but to be dealing with um, upper 80s, low 90s, that is, um, 
that would have been a major uh, heat wave for them in uh, 1781. I did learn some years back one time in Williamsburg that for those people living in southern colonies, they had shorter life expectancies versus those whom lived uh, in uh, northern colonies for various reasons. But, it, but at that time, I could see um, how those living in the south would have had uh, shorter life expectancies. Now, on September 7th of 1781, the American army was camped at Burdell's Plantation, seven miles from Utah Springs. Now, Burdell's plantation is owned by a man named John Burdell, B-U-R-D-E-L-L. He was a well-to-do landowner, and more than likely his residence, based upon what historical records have shown, his residence was the actual site of where Green's army camped. The majority of the provisions, being baggage, tents, and equipment, Green had um, instructed to be left at Fort Mott for protection purposes. General Green had only brought two wagons of hospital supplies on hand at Burdell's plantation. Now, you know, yes, it's important to have your essentials and provisions, but if you bring everything with you and you go to battle with the enemy and you lose... What do you think is the biggest worry? It's one thing, yes, to lose men. It's one thing to have men wounded or killed. But what about your provisions? What if the enemy gets all your provisions? Then you have nothing to fall back onto. How are you going to go about establishing an, an encampment elsewhere? What do you need at an encampment? You need tents. I mean, we don't have hotels, people. I mean... Yes, you could go to a tavern, but you're not going to fit an entire army or what's left of your army into a tavern. And who's to say that if the tavern owner's loyalties were that of, to the British, you're not going to be welcomed. So, yes, it's important to keep what's left of your provisions elsewhere so that if in the event you were to lose a battle or forced into a retreat, not only do you have um, the necessary means to fall back onto but you can take those provisions elsewhere, most notably uh, the necessary equipment and tents and baggage, and set up an uh, encampment elsewhere for uh, regrouping purposes. The eve of the battle saw soldiers on both sides make necessary final preparations from making sure cartridges were good and to inspecting weapons, sharpening flints, to being well-rested given how humid the weather itself had become. For the North and South Carolina militiamen, they viewed the upcoming battle as being personal. Their homes and property of all whom were fighting lied at stake. And for many of these North and South Carolina militiamen, this would be their first engagement. I thought many of the men were regulars, or what do you call it, seasoned veterans. Well, yes, many of Green's men are seasoned veterans, but... During the time that he had um, off for resting after um, Guilford Courthouse, he spent um, time recruiting new um, soldiers whom, were, whom would uh, fill the ranks of those whose enlistments were about to expire, or rather I should say were nearing expiration. So for these North and South Carolina militiamen, given that this is their first engagement, it's personal. They know that victory will... Um, help secure their homes and property 
if there is a defeat, there is a likelihood that their um, families' lives could be in jeopardy to where it would result in the loss of um, not only your uh, place of dwelling, but your property. And once you lose your property, then what else would you have to fall back onto? So everything truly is at stake. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, in this uh, podcast segment, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, start um, our focus on the first encounters, the first actual encounters on both sides. So that tells me, folks, that we are inching all the more closer to this upcoming battle. So, you know, we should keep in mind that just because a battle happens, it's one thing for the battle itself to happen, but it must be fair to say that there have to be encounters leading up to the eventual battle itself. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all here soon and wherever you all may live. Uh, continue to stay safe and thank you again for being such ardent podcast listeners. Thank you again for as always and uh, take care.